Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored through the state of Vermont's Center for Crime Victim Services. I'm Anna Nassett. I am host of this bi-monthly podcast and show. Today on the show, we have Ashley Bendixson, a survivor, activist, and speaker from the state of Rhode Island. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, Anna. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, this show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concept for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not only here in our state, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. As always, I'd like to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story related to crime, discuss our mental health, or other sensitive subject matter. We urge you to take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. So as I said, I'm delighted to have Ashley here today, uh, my friend who was also, well, just turned her crown over this week, but was the reigning Miss Rhode Island for America up until this weekend. Congratulations on that, Ashley. Thank you. <laughs> and she's going to discuss her journey and work today. Um, so just to share a little bit about her, she never could have dreamed that her darkest struggles would lend to her purpose. As a survivor of abuse, trauma, homelessness, and loss, Ashley knew she needed to transform her life. Today, she is an expert on abuse prevention and personal development as a national speaker and top youth speaker. She is also a certified life empowerment coach, author, nonprofit founder, and award-winning activist, and is the founder of the Blue Hearts Project. She is the author of Language of Time, a book on Alzheimer's, caregiving, and cherishing time. Ashley and I both serve as speakers with the Difference Makers 10 Strong, and it is a joy to have you here today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And thank you for that intro. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's quite the intro. <laughs> so I'm like, you're my bio read, and I'm like, are they talking about me? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so, I mean, to get to where we got to that intro, we kind of have to look back at the beginning a little bit. So, I mean whatever part of your share story you feel comfortable with sharing with our audience, um, I think it would be really helpful as we get into your, your path and what led you to this work you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So many moons ago, I was a, a teenager, young, naive, innocent to the world of dating and relationships. And unfortunately, um, as a 14 year old, my very first dating relationship was incredibly abusive. Um, and just set me off on the wrong foot. It was verbally, emotionally, and severely sexually abusive. And it taught me a lot of just unhealthy beliefs around what's normal in a relationship, what's healthy. And that relationship started um, a cycle of many abusive relationships in my life that really spanned from 14 to 20 years old, um, kind of culminating in this final two-year relationship, which was a classic, classic textbook uh, domestic violence relationship. I mean, my life was just turned upside down. And to kind of make a long story short, you know, at 20 years old, I was at complete rock bottom. I had been severely physically attacked after trying to leave that relationship. My bank accounts had been drained. I was completely isolated from my family, my friends. I was very much alone in the world. And, you know, very much battered, you know, emotionally and just um, kind of a hot mess. I had dropped out of college because of my relationship. Um, I was homeless for a while. I just I had no security and no direction and no idea where to go. Um, but after those six years, I kind of just 
I hit this wall where I realized, you know, I have nothing left, but you know, I no longer want to live this way and I want to create the life that I, I desire and, and feel that I deserve. And so um, it was just kind of this crazy time warp of just six years of people pleasing and allowing people to run my life and being in really toxic, unhealthy situations. Um, and from that moment on, I just was determined to never go back to that lifestyle and kind of just started building my life and my career and finding myself um, every day since. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for sharing how that first relationship, so often we don't think about how that first relationship a lot, like teaches us what we now believe each relationship is going to be. And we get stuck in those cycles. And mm -hmm. I think so often people are just like, well, I don't understand. Like, you know, you came from a good place or whatever it might be, how we get stuck into those cycles. So thank you for really acknowledging that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because you know, now that I'm older, I can look back and really pinpoint, um, you know, how just the smallest things, you know, affected me as a person, as a partner, you know, it, it took, I mean, I was sexually abused. So, you know, even just equating like physical intimacy with validation and love. And, you know, when I was assaulted years later in college, I just, it's almost like it didn't impact me. I thought that was just normal. This is just the, the female experience, you know, men take advantage of you. Uh, I just, I came to accept it because that's what I was taught was just the norm at such a young age. So yeah, I just, um, yeah, a lot of just unhealthy beliefs for a long time. Absolutely. Can you, is there, like I was reading on your website, you said in the dark moments, there was kind of a moment of intuition that changed <laughs> everything. Um, do you, do you have kind of like that concrete moment that you can speak to, or how did you know to believe in yourself and that your your worth was so much more than what these men were telling you you were worth yeah um it was a very concrete moment and it's funny because I've been speaking for so many years and my younger my younger self used to call it an aha moment but I really believe it was my intuition I think it was my inner voice finally speaking up and I finally listened to her again but I had just left um the courthouse after my ex was being arraigned for the domestic assault on me. And um, I had borrowed my grandmother's car. She was the only person I felt I could like go talk to and ask for help. And I remember leaving the courthouse. I sat down in the driver's seat and I took this deep breath. And I just remembered looking at the passenger seat next to me and it was empty. And it was the first time in two years that I hadn't had this person constantly next to me, with me at all times, dictating my thoughts, my next actions in my life. And it was such a profound moment that like I realized I'm alone in the world, but I'm free. And I started to just kind of in that, in the car, process everything I've thrown away, all of my own goals and aspirations that I just let fall to the wayside. And then it hit me, it wasn't just that partner, had been all the way back to 14 years old, I realized I have not been living for myself at all. I have let everybody around me get into my head. And I suddenly saw myself as like having nothing to do with all the external circumstances. I was like, it was never me. It was all the people around me. And um, I think in that moment, I just realized like, there's nothing wrong with you, Ashley. Like you're not a victim, you know, like you just allowed everybody else's you know statements and words and thought like become what you believe so yes yeah, something just switched in that moment and it was like now go like 
hit the ground running, make up for those six years of lost time, like create the life that you want. And uh, yeah, that switch flipped and it's, it's never turned off since. <laughs> Amazing. That's so incredible. You can really harness it into that moment. I think a lot of us that do this work of speaking, we have that kind of, oh, oh, I can. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's that, there's that moment where I was like, I'm going to do something different with this. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that you did that was very different was that you started entering into the pageant world. And I'm just curious, you know, we all find our different ways of healing and how did entering into the pageant world help people gain confidence? And what is it like to use that platform to talk about domestic violence and teen dating mm-hmm. violence? Yeah, I think that one of the things that surprised me the most was realizing that I was a victim of domestic violence uh, because it was not a label I ever would have put on myself. You know, I didn't believe I was a victim. I just justified it in many other ways. And I also didn't think it was something that happened to young people. And so, you know, one of my missions kind of became like, how do I get the word out there? How do I raise awareness? How do I explain that this can happen to anybody? And I thought, what a great way to do that by breaking a stereotype, wearing a crown on my head and saying, you know, even Miss New Bedford, which is the title I ended up winning, you know, can be a victim of dating violence. And, um, you know, pageants are, they're all interesting. They're all unique in their own way. But the one that I entered, I knew that if I won the title, it was a chance to have a whole year where I would make appearances and choose a cause that I wanted to spread spread word about. And also it was a lot of scholarship money that I could win. And I mentioned I had dropped out of college. So I ended up becoming Miss New Bedford, made over 120 appearances talking about dating violence and earned $6,000 in scholarship money, which eventually helped me get back to school. But honestly, through that process, just um, speaking and sharing my story, um, getting involved in local domestic violence agencies and coalitions and nonprofits, I just, I found that I was a leader, that my story could make an impact and help other people. And it was just such a big, um, a big part of my own healing journey was through speaking and connecting and kind of being at the forefront of change on the issues that, you know, once held me back. So it was definitely a transformational year um, that just helped, you know, skyrocket my own growth and healing. Absolutely. I mean, way to put yourself out there, especially during that time when I'm sure everything was still uncertain. Like, would you be able to go back to school? How was your life going to look like to go out and be on that platform and spread that awareness is, I know will be very inspiring for so many people to hear. And like I said, we all, we all do it in our way. And I just like our own way. And I just like absolutely commend you. And you'll always be wearing that crown. Oh yeah. Invisible <laughs> crown is always on. <laughs> yes. Um, so you would end up from that becoming over the years, a very prolific speaker and activist. Um, what has that journey been like for you? And I know that you gravitate towards education of children and young adults. Um, how has that become really your passion? Um, And how do you approach that work? Yeah, um, you know, I started speaking right away. I started speaking at, you know, 20, 21 years old. And it's funny, it's not a a path that I chose. Um, I was volunteering with a domestic violence agency and they asked me to speak at one of their events. And I was so nervous. I mean, shaking, reading my story on paper. Um, But interestingly, after that event, I got a lot of requests from local uh, nonprofits to go speak to youth in the community because a lot of them were in the audience at the event. So I just kind of started speaking to teens organically and um, just realized that 
uh, it was probably a place where I could make the greatest impact. You know, it's, it's, I am the speaker that I, I wish that I would have had today. Um, and we know that these issues disproportionately affect young people. Um, you know, teens, one in three teens will face some type of abuse in a dating relationship. And that's a really concerning number. And then also the fact that, you know, being in an abusive relationship is a, you know, root cause for anxiety, depression, mental health struggles, substance abuse. So, you know, I really see the quality of our relationships as determining the quality of our health and our wellness in our lives. So I, I believe that by helping teens, I can help not only young people when they need it most, but hopefully create a generation where there's healthier relationships in general, where, you know, kids are taught this stuff young because, you know, we're not taught about healthy dating. We're not taught about, you know, consent. I mean, there's a movement towards that now. Uh, we're not taught at, at a young age how to listen to our intuition and our gut about things. And so I, I believe that's where I can make the biggest impact. So started kind of doing it, just volunteering my time and speaking anywhere I could. And um, eventually I went back to school, studied the justice system, worked in victim services, and this became my whole specialization. Um, and now, you know, that's kind of my expertise is I'm a professionally paid speaker, um, traveling the US and in high schools and colleges and um, using my story, but also giving them really tangible advice and information and, and tips and resources. Amazing. Amazing. We need to have you come up here to Vermont. <laughs> oh, I love that. Easy little drive. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What has, I mean, with the pandemic, now that you're back speaking out in person, what do you see the struggles now for, for young people coming out of that pandemic, being so isolated and hooked on, you know, their phone and social media over the last two years, and now coming back into that in-person range? Like, how have you been working with that or just noticing that or addressing that? Mm. You know, over the years, I've always had requests to speak on mental wellness, mental health, resilience in general. You know, how do you navigate tough times in life? How do you navigate those moments where you feel like it's the end of the world? And that's certainly something I can speak on. So over the past few years, um, I've created this custom, you know, mental health and resilience talk because teens right now, like you said, are struggling in many ways. The national statistics are through the roof about um, suicide attempts and self-harm and just mental health, um, you know, uh, medical visits. And so um, I'm really focusing on the healthy relationship piece, which is a big part of it, but also just other life skills too, to manage negative emotions, to have a more positive mindset, um, to ask better questions all of these things, because, you know, be, being in remote learning, um, you know, a lot of students that isolation really um, stunted their own personal growth. You had, you know, kids who were six, sixth graders one day, and then all of a sudden they're back in school and they're, you know, ninth graders. And um, it's just been really tough for kids to transition. I hear from a lot of them that they used to be really social outgoing people, and now they don't know how to interact in real mm -hmm. life. And then even with, you know, dating violence and, and sexual assault, I mean, even being in lockdown, those things didn't go away. I heard stories of, you know, one partner is abusing their, their partner in a Google Meet classroom chat, like during a remote class. So, you know, technology is such a tool to still perpetuate abuse. And so these issues were just exacerbated during the pandemic. You know, the loss of control in the outside world 
for many abused teens meant more control in their relationships, more unfair demands and expectations. So yeah, there's just, I, I feel like I was busy before the pandemic, but I am so much busier now just because there's such a need for students to get support. And um, I think honestly, what schools need the most, what students need the most is just a sense of hope, like a sense yeah. that like things will get better <laughs> um, because that's what they're struggling with the most right now is feeling like every day is just hard and it's the same thing over and over. And if I can give them hope and some practical advice, um, that's where I'm focusing right now. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're out there working with students. They desperately need that right now. And just that you've had these years of experience before this, so you really craft that message to them. I think it's just such a valuable thing for anybody. Mm. So another part of your journey, that's a little bit, a little nuts, you know, it's kind of a curve in the road, I guess, but a very big part of your journey. And I am so glad that you wrote about this is you wrote a book called the language of time. And it's a book on Alzheimer's caregiving and cherishing time. Um, can you share a little bit with us about why you wrote this book and what that process was like, and also where people can purchase it, of course. Um, and just how that ties into your work, because, you know, I think oftentimes like myself as well, like I have like these different lanes of work and they all intersect and people don't always see that, but it makes sense to us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I published, so this is my like pandemic baby. I published my book in June of 2020. Um, and it was a memoir that I had been writing for many years. I've always been a journaler as a teenager in my healing process. I've always kept journals. And my mom was actually, uh, my mom developed Alzheimer's at 48 years old. And so overnight I became a caregiver to her and I was pretty much her primary caregiver with my dad for the next eight years. And during that whole process, I was journaling just for my own mental well-being. I was doing a little bit of blogging and kind of sharing just the caregiving process. And um, I felt like it was very impactful information and people were telling me like, you should turn this into a book. So when my mom did pass, I finally started to go back to my journal entries and I had like recorded conversations with her, just knowing that, you know, she, I didn't know how long we had, you know, she could have lived for two years or 10. We had no clue. So my whole mission for eight years was like, how do I embrace each moment, live in the present, make the most of my time with my mom. And um, that's kind of the basis of the book. And, you know, I think for me, the red thread um, that goes through it all is this concept that like life is short and time is not guaranteed. Like, I feel like I lost six years of my life. I feel like my mom's life was short. I just feel like it's this consistent lesson of like, go after your dreams, make an impact, be of service, do it today. Um, because you don't know when, you know, something might take that opportunity away from you and don't let people slow you down or prevent you from going after your dreams and goals. So um, it definitely has um, influenced my life and my perspective on it and how I live. Um, and also, you know, I, I don't share this too often, but you know, the doctors don't know why my mom got Alzheimer's and it's not genetic as far as we know. Um, but I have also read that it can be brought on by severe trauma or depression. And my mom was incredibly unhappy in her marriage. Um, you know, my dad was not abusive, but he was very financially controlling. She had a very isolated life. And I almost feel like my mom just checked out, <laughs> um, you know, and so in some ways, I even think that's a lesson of like, 
choose the right person, someone who helps you grow and feel loved and, you know, don't feel boxed in. So yeah, there's, there's that, that red thread that to me makes sense, but, um, I've loved writing that book. And, um, now I'd like to write another one, you know, one that relates more to my speeches and my business, but, um, it's been, a, it's been a cool thing to release it into the world. I think it comes back to, um, you know, one of the things I believe in is the power of our stories and mm-hmm. using our voices, right? It's, it's the issues that we all um, deal with in silence and secrecy, and that solidarity can sometimes make such an impact on one life or on a whole issue. And so, like, I've been able to build solidarity with caregivers who feel like, oh, like I read your book, and like I totally related to this, and nobody else in my life gets it. So, um, yeah, I just knew that like my story could make a difference yet again, even though it was a different story. So you can get that on Amazon, the language of time or the language of time.com. That's easier, but there you go. Go Um, out and get it and support that book. Awesome. Yeah. And I do think like, I love what you said, because it's something that I resonate with a lot is, you know, I go out and talk and do my thing and people are like, you're so happy. How are you so happy talking about these things? And I'm like, oh, well, it's not always that way. But my thing is, I'm like, this is my one beautiful little brilliant life. Like, mm-hmm. what am I going to do with it? And it would be easy to sit in that sadness and that pain and let ourselves go down that way. Um, but it sounds like you and I both are similar. It's like, yeah, like, this is it. I'm going to do whatever I can and pursue every little dream and just make it my beautiful life and try and impact someone along the way. Yeah. And I, I think like, it's totally okay to have strong emotions and have bad days but I, I try to consistently remind myself of like, like, you don't get to do that to me. Like my abuser, my rapist, I'm like, you don't get to put me in a bad mood today. You don't get to ruin my life anymore. Like if you're getting in my head, I am shutting you right out. So it's like, no, I'm, this is part of the reclamation process is like, you don't get to make me feel that way anymore. <laughs> what do you do? I'm going to skip a question. I'll come back to but like, what do you do on those bad days? Cause I know I let myself have them. I'm like, okay, you get to have this day, but then tomorrow you, you done. Um, and like, I always, I always say like the one thing I try and do is my dishes when I have a really bad day. Like if I get my <laughs> dishes done. Um, so what do you do on those bad days? You know, they're pretty infrequent now just because I'm much more far removed from my own trauma. So it's, they happen less and less, but um, I definitely turn to like my healthy coping strategies. I, I love to write. I will open my journal that will make me feel better just writing for a little bit. Um, I find a lot of healing outdoors and in nature. I feel like if I am in my head or if I'm not feeling so hot, I just need to reconnect with myself usually and feel really grounded. So maybe I'll take a hike or I will go down to the beach and just walk on the sand. Like those moments help me come back to me and like remind me of my own strengths and my power and who I am and almost take a little moment of like gratitude for where I've been. You know, I reframe like this awful thing happened, but also look who it's made me, you know, Mm -hmm. and look how strong I am. So yeah, usually I just need to reground myself. So I have different little ways that I do it. Awesome. Awesome. I love hearing that. (laughs) Um, Because we're all on this journey and it's nice to hear, like, I liked hearing that you're like, they don't happen as much anymore. And that's a really nice reminder for someone who's maybe newer in their journey and being triggered a lot or really having those hard days every day that it gets better with time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I saw is that you also run a nonprofit, the Blue Hearts Project. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that nonprofit is and who you serve with that? Yeah. So, um, 
technically it's a not-for-profit. It's not like um, I haven't incorporated it, but uh, you know, one of the things I heard over, have heard many times over the years is survivors coming up to me after a speech and saying, you know, I really wish I could share my story to help others too, but I don't want to be a speaker. You know, what could I, what else could I do? And it kind of gave me this idea to create a space where people could share their stories to help others. And also, I think it's very therapeutic to get your story out and, and release it to the world. And so um, I actually met with a small group of students to kind of help me with the infrastructure and the branding and the concept, but it is an online storytelling platform for anyone who has survived um, domestic abuse, sexual assault, or child abuse. Um, and there's some question prompts so that it really allows you to tell your story, but then um, kind of like, how did you grow from it? What did you gain? What advice do you have to others? And so, um, you know, I think hearing real stories is the best way to raise awareness and education more than like statistics and facts. And so, yeah, it's blueheartsproject.com. We have hundreds of stories from survivors all over the globe. Um, it's a great way to learn, to feel less alone, to feel like, okay, there's other people that went through this. Um, and also just to kind of go through your own um, processing of just getting your story out there. So yeah, it's been kind of a cool little side project. Um, and it's a lot to, to manage because I get a lot of submissions, but um, yeah, I encourage anyone who wants to share their story, help others, you can do it anonymously. Um, if you want to include your name, I just do first name, middle initial kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's been really neat. So it's just a global storytelling platform. I love that. Cause I, I mean, I do think that, yeah, we learn through storytelling mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of times, same thing, people are like, how do I, how do I become a speaker? How do I do this? And, and I always say, I'm like, you know, if you, if you decide you want to become a speaker, amazing, but that's not the only way to do this work. You know, there's so many different ways in which we can serve victims and survivors. Like, you know, I do graphic and web design for victim service agencies. It's mm. this very quiet thing I do. But mm -hmm. for me, like there's so many different ways, but I love that your the Blue Hearts Project gives people an ability to say their story and to share that information, but to do that in a way that also has their privacy and mm. their control and their care within it. What a great, great project. And I'll post a link to it in my social media people. <laughs> so you can all check it out. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. So you and I are both passionate about victims' voices being heard and having a place at the table. Um, can you tell me about this, the importance for you to this and how you've been involved as an activist in this work of making sure that victims are heard and cared for? Yeah. I mean, I think I've just, um, I've done it in many ways. I've done it through my employed previous work as a victim advocate. I worked in courtrooms. I worked on college campuses. Um, on a college campus, I helped rewrite the policy and I've, I've trained RAs and, and law enforcement on campus on how they can be a better service. Um, you know, I think like we say this a lot in the field, like having a victim-centered approach and being trauma-informed, but really understanding like the importance of empowerment and, you know, supporting someone to be their own advocate. So I've tried to do that through my work. Um, I've been a career volunteer for as long as I can remember now. So I've been on many boards of directors and coalitions, and I've done lots of fundraising and, um, you know, awareness events. And right now I'm working on a um, piece of legislation in Massachusetts that would improve um, 
employment protections for those who are going through domestic violence and it's they need time off from work it makes sure that there's no um there's no ramifications like they're not going to lose their job if they you know need to take time for court so uh yeah i'm always just looking for ways that i can um help people understand this issue so yeah it's just who i am i guess <laughs> absolutely awesome awesome it's so important that like each of those things, like anytime we can help a law get changed, even just a little bit, like it's so important and it makes such a difference to the next person going through this situation. Mm -hmm. So what would you want to say to victims and survivors listening today um, as, you know, they, you know, maybe have disclosed, maybe haven't disclosed, but are just kind of taking in hearing us talk today. Um, what would you want to offer to, to folks out there listening? You know, it might be um, cliched, but I think it's so true that you're not alone. You know, I think when you've gone through trauma or abuse, I mean, it's it's a systemic like process of someone making you feel like you're alone. Um, and just knowing that you're not, like there's resources out there. There's people like us who have been there and we get it. You know, I remember thinking my situation is so unique. It's so different. No one could possibly understand. I just have to figure this out on my own. I've learned how to manage it, so I'm okay. And I didn't even think to look up like local resources. I didn't even know resources existed. So, you know, my one thing is like, you are not alone. There's people out there. There's incredible free resources out there. You know, a lot of times I hear like, oh, I don't have money for counseling. I'm like, there's free counseling at domestic violence agencies and people don't know these things exist. So, um, you know, be an advocate for yourself do your own research. You know, how would you support a friend going through this? Be that for yourself and just um, start, you know, it's, it's all about um, doing what feels right for you. Um, but I think just doing something is a first step, whether that's talking to someone about it, getting advice confidentially and anonymously through a hotline. Um, just taking that first step is really huge and you're not alone. There's people out there for you. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. Like you are not alone. Yeah. And especially, I mean, whether you decide to report or not, like justice looks so different to every single person. Yeah. And sometimes justice is just finding that you're not alone and knowing that you're not alone in the situation. Yeah. I think can be Absolutely. so profound. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of, I mean, kind of tapping onto that, this is going to be my last question as we wind down within that, like, other than connecting with other survivors, what other ways would you suggest somebody who's just starting out on this journey to look towards healing? Like not necessarily the disclosing or reporting, but just looking inwardly on how we can start to heal and um, walk through that space. Mm. You know, it is a journey. It takes time. You know, you won't find healing overnight. You know, most people don't just get that moment of intuition and suddenly they feel great five minutes later and, it, you know, cleanses everything away. I think just know that it's a process and almost um, 
try to be excited about the journey because even though it's hard, it will, the end product is like the most beautiful result and outcome because you will find who you are. You will develop a deeper sense of self-worth and self-love. You know, I think that this whole journey of healing really has been about like refalling in love with myself again and remembering who I was before the world hurt me. Remembering like, you know, five-year-old Ashley before, you know, anything ever got in her head. And um, so take it one day at a time. And, you know, really pay attention to how you think about things, how you view things. Is it just some, is our, is your abuser's voice still in your head running the show? You know, it's just, it's all about self-awareness and being willing to put in the effort and do the work. And some days the work is very hard, um, but when you come out of it, you're lighter, you're, you know, you, you begin to rebloom. So um, yeah, it's, it's a journey and try to fall in love with it, even the hard days, because it's, it's got a beautiful ending. Yeah. And as we've heard with your journey today, like be open to the unexpected, like, mm-hmm. you know, like you entering into the pageant world probably isn't what somebody would normally go like, oh, that'd be a great place <laughs> to heal. Yet it was, which is so cool. So just really being open to the unexpected places that healing can come from and lead you to. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here today, Ashley. This was awesome to have you on. Um, I'm so excited to connect with you more throughout the year. Uh, For those listening, you can learn all about Ashley at her website, A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-E-N-D-I-K-S-E-N.com. That's ashleybendixon.com. Um, so go there and you can purchase her book and learn all about her amazing work. And as always, folks, if you have questions for me, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me on at standupresources.com. Once again, thank you, Ashley, for being here. It was a delight. Um, I'm your host, Anna Nasset, and I look forward to having you on again um, some other time. And for everyone else, thank you for listening to The Mend. Be well, be strong, and goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.